0: Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, That is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what's good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. I thank God Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. But with the flesh, the law of sin. There are few elements of Christian living more frustrating than what Paul's talking about here there there are there are a few elements maybe there are one or two but really one of the greatest struggles that I think we have in trying to live out the gospel to live the Christian life to be faithful and obedient and holy sons and daughters of God is that we know what to do at least we know what we ought to do we know what should be done We know what God expects. We understand that the gospel has freed us from the law of sin and death. We understand what the Christian life should be. We know it in our mind, and yet so often, we just don't do it. In fact, my guess is, what we're going to talk about today and next week, even in moving into chapter 8, as I warned, we're, we're getting into difficult waters. And what I mean by that is kind of twofold. One, there's some debated elements of this text in particular. But really, Paul is dealing with what is an ancient struggle. Especially as believers and some of our most perplexing issues. Why is it that if on the one hand, I am saved by the gospel, freed from sin, I have victory in Christ. And yet I can still do some really dumb things things. Paul then is going to take us into some solutions to this, some answers to this. We're going to wrestle with Paul along with with these issues. But that's going to lead to what is another one coming up in chapter 8. And that is, if God is so good and, and if there is victory and hope and joy in Christ, then why is there such pain and suffering and evil in this world? How can I trust God in His goodness when things just really seem so bad sometimes. So again, this is where we're going in Romans in a lot of ways. This is what I've been waiting for. I know it's been over a year, alright? But Romans 8 is is kind of like the, the high holy moment in some ways, if you can say that about any part of the Bible, this is, this, is kind of, this is kind of bringing us to a climactic point in what Paul has been saying up to this point, yet before we get to chapter 8, we've got to struggle here through the, the end, end of chapter 7. We resonate with these words, right? I mean, if you are kind of following along and reading, maybe you're just listening, and if that's the case and it didn't really hit you, go back and read it again, read it again and again and again. Because these words do resonate, and my guess is everyone here can identify with this, where you've committed an action, you've engaged in some kind of sin, you've disobeyed God, and on the other side of it, you look back with a little better perspective, and you ask the question, how could I have done that? Why did I do that? I I know I shouldn't have done that. I knew when I did it, I shouldn't have done that yet I still did it. Why? Why does it seem like every time I make one step forward, I take two steps back? Why is it that the struggle seems so difficult? And maybe some of you have even been in this position, sitting right where you're sitting, saying, and I've heard that preacher say a thousand times, there's victory in Jesus. We have freedom from our sin. And why do I walk in here yet again today, another Sunday, with yet again the same guilt of sin bearing on my soul? There is some good news, by the way. As they say, you've heard the phrase, misery loves company. You can pretend you don't understand it. You can tell others you don't understand what Paul's talking about here. That would make you... Someone with pants on fire. Liar, right? No, this is is the struggle, and we're in good company, right? Not only with one another, but we're in good company with the Apostle Paul. Paul is bringing chapter 7 to a close. I think he's doing so as a way to prepare us for what is going to be some profound and glorious truth in chapter 8. But again, before we can get to what is some of Paul's solution to this struggle, you know, we still have to kind of go through the struggle ourselves. In fact, your struggle may even go as far as to ask yourself the question, am I even really saved? Can a believer really have this kind of a thought? Can a, re- can a believer really engage in this kind of an action? Maybe. Maybe my problem is I'm not even a Christian, and I need to get saved, baptized, dunked all over again. So, so, so now we find ourselves with, with this text, with what we just read, and, I, and I've been uncertain exactly what to do, because this is the most debated passage in Romans. Romans. Not necessarily the hardest. In other words, there's parts of Romans that I think are harder, but primarily because of what they are teaching. Not because there's great debate around it necessarily, but this is what what the text means, and that can be really hard to understand. Original sin, right? Inherited depravity from Adam. That was tough. Romans 5. Highly debated text, but for a different reason. Romans 7. This passage right here is highly debated. Here's what the debate is. Who's the I? In verses 13 through 25. Now let me ask you. Fine people of Tabernacle Baptist Church. Who would you assume the I to be? Paul. I'm not exactly sure why there's this tendency to find every other reason for the I to be something else. In other words, there are a lot who say, no, the I here is a generic Rhetorical eye. Doesn't that sound like something that preaches good on a Sunday morning, right? You'd love to hear about the rhetorical eye, wouldn't you? What is that? Is that a new movie coming out? All right. No. What they mean is when Paul moves into this I language, he's not talking about himself necessarily, he's talking about the common struggle that, that a believer may have, not in his life as a believer, but looking back onto his life as an unbeliever. Now, to me, that seems really forced. I don't see a natural, you know, good, good method of Bible study way to kind of get to that. So the debate then is this, about who the I is, so is this talking about a believer or an unbeliever? You say, oh, "A Pastor, I'm not really sure why this is a problem. Note a couple of phrases here as to why do folks say this. Look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. Sold under sin. Sounds like an unbeliever, doesn't it? In fact, that sounds like Romans 6, the first half of it anyway, where, where Paul talks about, as an unbeliever, I am enslaved to sin. I'm in bondage. Language of being carnal. Wow, that really sounds bad, doesn't it, right? In other words, that, that really doesn't sound like something that a believer would necessarily say about himself or herself. But but then you have this phrase in verse 15. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Say, what's the problem there? Well, do unbelievers really understand God's will? Do unbelievers really understand God's expectations for holiness? Do unbelievers really care? Do, Do they have this war within them? Not like this? No. This really sounds... Only a believer would say. Then he goes on to say in verse 18. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Sounds like an unbeliever. Then notice the next phrase. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Sounds like a believer, right? And Paul will even say like in in verse 21. Where he says, I find this law that's at work. There's evil present uh, than the one who wills to do good. And then he says, verse 22, For I delight in the law of God. Do unbelievers delight in the law of God? Doesn't sound very unbeliever-ish, does it? In fact, the first three chapters of Romans seem to make it explicitly clear that there's none who seek God. There's no one righteous. No, not one. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, it makes it clear No, not even in my mind do I love God or want to pursue God or delight in God's truth? So this this is a tricky passage. And as we go along, I may point out some of these as we get to a bit uh, of it this morning and then next week uh, as as we finish it out. we, We may talk more, you know, about this distinction. And if you would like to read about 500 pages of this debate, you let me know, all right? You'll need to bring a wheelbarrow because it's a big stack of books, all right? These commentaries are big and heavy. Um, now, as I'm prone to do, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, uh, but I usually have an opinion. <laughs> Y'all, some of you haven't, some of you noticed it, all right. So I do here, uh, humble but accurate, uh, opinion, all right? Some of you are still at Bojangles. You're, you're eating a, a Bowberry biscuit right now. Alright, I don't know. I should never say that stuff. All right. If, if you get one, you have to get one for me. Alright. Now I'm thinking about it. I think the text, to me, the plainest reading of it, just like when I asked you before, who's saying what to Paul? To me, the, mo- the most telling part of this text, Paul does two things here. One, he shifts to first person. Up to now, it's, always, it's, been, it's been first person plural. Now it's first person singular. Okay? Plus, he, he moves from past tense verbs to present tense verbs. This is what it was. This is what it is. If it seems to me that just the most obvious reading of the text, the plainest, simplest reading of the text, in spite of the fact that there are certainly questions related to it, I believe Paul's talking about a believer. And on top of this, this is not the best reason why you would interpret a text a certain way, but let's just talk anecdotally. Don't we identify with Paul here? Don't don't we identify with the struggle? I've met a lot of believers who do. And I've met very few believers who do. Unbelievers who do. Meaning... Most of the time, it is a believer who's struggling like this. Rarely do I get the unbeliever, unless he's under conviction of the Spirit, rarely do I get an unbeliever talking like this. Believers? Yeah. And this is, this is what we struggle with, is it not? So, th- this is how I'm going I'm to fall down here uh, on this debate. I think this is Paul's personal testimony. But let me offer you a bit of an out. Out. the end of the day, I don't think that's Paul's primary purpose in the first place. Keep in mind, all along the way, what has Paul been trying to say about the gospel? You can, but God can. You can't, but God can, right? You can't do it in your own power. The law can't do it. Your goodness can't do it. You can't will yourself to it. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can't get out of this mess. You can't dig yourself out of this pit. Whatever cliche you want to find, fill in the blank. In other words, you can't do this on your own. In fact, you can't do it at all in any power you've got. It's not like God's 99% and you're 1%. You're 0% He's 100%. And I know that creates some questions. But but, but understand, this is the fundamental reality of the nature of my sin and God's gospel. I can't do it. But here's what I think Paul's doing. Paul's making it plain that whether I'm talking about being justified in God's sight or whether I'm talking about being sanctified, I can't do either one. And I hope and pray that after we get through struggle we get encouraged and maybe even just a little bit here this morning to encourage you it's not so that you will wallow in your sin and disobedience i don't want you to do that but i do want you to know you don't have the power in and of yourself as a believer to sanctify yourself i still need god's grace What does this text do for me? If it does anything for me, Romans 7, the end of Romans 7, once again drives me to this principle. And it is this. I don't just need Jesus to convert me. I need Jesus to walk with me 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. My sin is not gone just because my sin is Given it is still very much present and I'm in desperate need of the gospel not just when I was 13 years old and came under conviction of the Spirit I am 44 am in just as much need of the gospel as I was then I still need salvation I still need Jesus I can't do this and when I try to do it I do those things I do not understand what I will to do it's there, I want to do it, but I don't. And I slip into this self-sanctifying tendency. So again, you really don't have to make a choice here. I think he could be talking about either situation, but our focus is going to be on what is this fundamental uh, perspective, that he's, he's talking from the perspective of a believer, and that we in fact can struggle with sin. All right, so here's what we're going to do, and I know, you, I know you're wondering, all right. That was his longest introduction ever. I don't know, there may be one or two up there, All right, but nonetheless, yes, this has been a long one for a couple of reasons, I hope it's been helpful to look at the text this way, to kind of run ourselves back up into Romans, get ourselves thinking again in these kind of heavy, weighty, profound theological terms, but I do want to give you one point only because it's a principal point. And it will just take us a moment to dispatch of it, All right, Understanding this is what I think Paul is doing in this text. I think he's offering us this honest assessment of the struggles of being a believer. We can and will struggle with sin. Now don't misunderstand this. I don't think we will always, 24 hours a day, struggle to this depth. I don't think that's what he's getting at here. I don't think he's saying this is always the way it will be. But I think he is saying this can happen. When we find ourselves unmoored from the sanctifying work of the gospel. We We can slip in to this kind of a testimony. Interestingly enough, the reason why I'm convinced, again, Paul's talking about himself. If you read Paul's letters, one of his first letters, he referred to himself as a chief of sinners. His last letter, 2 Timothy, he calls himself the worst of all sinners. In other words, after 30 years, Paul's view of his sin got worse. It got worse. So I, th- I, think that's, I think that's the context in which we understand what's going on here in Romans 7. Paul is describing for us what can be a very real struggle and why it can be hard. And this is what we'll reflect on, but then also moving, preparing ourselves for Romans 8. It doesn't always have to be there this way. There is hope. There is a solution. Uh, there is a way forward. And so we'll just have to stick with this. So let, let's, let's look at how Paul is describing this struggle by just looking at this first principle that we've already kind of talked about, but let's make it plain. Verse 13, So number one. And maybe you've already filled in the blank. The law is good, but it can't sanctify. The law is good. It's good. When I say good, I don't, I don't mean good like you take a bite of food and think, oh, that's pretty good. Now, you know, when I say good, I mean perfect, holy righteous, unblemished uh, a perfect reflection of God's own holiness so it's good and I still need it but I don't need it because it sanctifies me, it does not so notice what he says in verse 13 has then what is good become death to me again he's still defending the goodness of the law and some perhaps have challenged him and said well Paul if what you say is true then the law is responsible for killing you and he says this, certainly not but sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. Similar to what Paul says in the first part of chapter 7. Sin takes what is good and co opts it for its evil purposes. In other words, sin takes the law and uses it in accusatory manner. Sin takes the law and says, yep, you thought you were bad? Now take a look at yourself. Take a look at yourself in light of the standard of what God's holiness is. My goodness, you thought you were bad. You, you knew nothing about your badness, alright? It's a lot worse than you think. The problem is worse than you think. Sin does this. Sin takes the law, presses the point. It says, so that it might, might appear as sin, it produced death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful odd statement. It makes it sound like, alright, with the law, now, I'm, now my sin's worse than it was before. It's not like it makes the sin worse when he says law, the sin became exceedingly sinful. It's just a way of saying sin became more and more obvious. In other words, the true nature of the sin. The sin was bad before. But to show the law against it shows it for what it really is. And so Paul's really making the point here the law is not responsible for my spiritual death; sin is. Now you'll have to hold on to that. He's not giving you an out here, as if you're somehow not responsible for your sin. We'll get to that later. But Paul is making it clear this this is the nature of the law, and he goes on to say there in verse fourteen, verse we just read. The law is what? The law is spiritual, and it says the spiritual meaning of the spirit. That which is pure, that which is holy, that which is righteous, that which is just and true. So the law, even as a believer, by the way, the law is still helpful. The law still does expose my ongoing struggles with sin. It does show me what it looks like to be a, a liar, a murderer, an idolater, a blasphemer. It shows me these things, what it's like to be a coveter, what it's like to be an adulterer. It shows me these things. And it shows me these are not mere actions. These are conditions of heart and mind. So the law is still good. It just exposes me for what I am. And why there's still this ongoing need for the gospel in my life. So the, so the law, yes, spiritual, good, righteous, just. Just can't sanctify me. I, and I can illustrate this. this so we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up this part, alright? And we'll, we'll move on. Next week we'll get to the to the last three points. Then next Sunday. But I think we can illustrate this. Let's say there's some kind of blemish on my face. All right. Let's say I was wrist deep in a bucket of ice cream. All right. Just. All right, ice cream on my face, but I couldn't couldn't feel it, couldn't tell. Until I stand in front of a mirror, what does the mirror do? Did the mirror make me an ice cream glutton and a messy eater? Is it the mirror's fault I look like this? Do I stand there and say, Mirror, I can't believe this? I was fine until I looked into you, right? I mean, that's not what the mirror does. What does the mirror do? The mirror merely reflects my condition, right? How odd would it be for me to then go out in public and you see me still like this? Say, hey, Faster. What's going on here, big man? Alright, what's going on here with all this uh, ice cream? I, man, I don't know. The mirror did it. I don't know. I mean, I was fine until I looked in the mirror and saw this. I don't know what to tell you. This is not my fault. It's the mirror's fault. Same illustration of a medical test. About a month ago today. Literally, on a Sunday. Spent my Sunday in urgent care. All right? And they did a test. They did a strep test. Felt like I was seven years old. All right? They did a strep test on me. That, I think that was the last time I had it. And she made me gag. All right? My eyes watered again. I felt like a little child sitting there. It was difficult. She had, she had a hard patient. In other words, it was difficult for her to get what she needed, but she did it. And when she came back with the result, Yep, you got strep. Who do you think you are? I would have never had strep had you not given me that test. I would have never had it had you not told me. It's ridiculous, right? Right. Instead, it's just a it's a reflective tool, right? It's a means by which an assessment. Can be made. So think about that in terms of the law, though to an even greater degree. This, this is God's ultimate, perfect, holy mirror, right? This is a true reflection of who I am. It's good. It's just. It's right. But does the mirror clean my face off? Does the test cure the strep throat? No. So this is the function of the law. We need to keep this in mind as we keep going here because Paul's going to continue to make much of law, this law, particular laws, how they're at work in my life, this, this law that's going on in the mind, this law that's going on in the flesh, so we'll, we'll continue then to work this out. And Paul begins this by making it very clear. All right, So the law is not to blame, but the law is important because the law reflects who I am, but the law can't sanctify me. And this is going to be the basis through, from which Paul will then launch into this struggle. This struggle that he knows this law. Now as a believer, he knows it, he sees it, he understands it. He understands the purpose of the mirror. He gets what the medical test is for. And yet he finds in his own members, in his own body, in his own flesh, this powerlessness. Can't conquer his sin. Then he gives us this great word of victory. I've got to go ahead and get to it. All right, we'll get to it next week, but I've got to go ahead and get to it. Because then he cries out that last question that many of us have cried, maybe not so poetically as Paul does, but we've cried it out. Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to Jesus Christ my Lord. See, believer, that's still your hope. It's still your need. You never get beyond needing Jesus. Maybe you've heard that all your life. Well, you just heard it One more day, plus all your life. If you come back next Sunday, you'll hear it again. This is our need. We still need Christ. Why? Because only He can save, and only He can sanctify, and only He can sustain me. And when you find yourself in this struggle, where do you fly? You fly to the cross. You you, you fly to Jesus Christ, the One who has promised to hold you forever. So, as we have a time of invitation, I'll make an appeal to a couple of different folks. First, foremost, my appeal to anybody here who's not a believer. And understand your condition is a serious one. In fact, you are facing a death sentence. But there's life, and that life is in Christ. And if you will confess your sin and confess Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, and if you would ask God to save you based on what Christ and Christ alone has done, then you can be saved today. If you feel like you want to talk more about that, I'll be right down front. I would love to talk with you. I also make an appeal to believers here. I know this is a tricky text to respond publicly to, right? I understand. But you think, oh man, if I go forward here, and in other words... I know what you're about to say, Pastor. If I'm struggling with something, if I'm having this war within me, if there's sin that I know I shouldn't do that I'm doing, and I walk forward, all those people are going to look at me and thinking, what kind of sin does he have? No, they won't. You know what they're going to be thinking? I wish I had the courage to do the same thing. And if someone were thinking that, you don't care what they think. Just I'll go ahead and tell you that. All right? If there is somebody, about that. Because I promise you, there is a Savior. There is a Savior who is ready to forgive. There is a Savior who is ready to sanctify. Not to save you again, believer. To bring you back on the path of sanctification. Making you like Christ. If that is your need, I would invite you here. For some reason, that's still a little... They know that God's Spirit is here than it is there. Alright? And so as we sing together... What is a profound and precious truth about the power of our Savior? You respond as God would lead you through His Spirit. Stand together, I pray. This time then will be open to you, Father. Father, you word. thank you for your Word. I thank you for the way in which we see this struggle and understand the struggle God. We pray for freedom. We pray for your understanding of not only your Word, sanctification and victory in Christ by Your Spirit. And may we commit ourselves to that this morning and that You be glorified through any decision that's made. And it's in Christ's name.